Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Bonjour and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined as always by coach Trevor Connor, who is not French. Right now, the 2019 Tour de France is in full swing. Yesterday, we saw the riders crawl up the steep finishing ramps of La Planche de Belfie, and today, as we speak, they're churning through all 230 kilometers of this year's longest stage. If you're like us, every day, for most of July, you're pretending to work while you surreptitiously watch the biggest race of them all, cleverly tucking that live stream behind some important-looking Word document. For three weeks, we watch the best bike racers in the world tear themselves apart for four-plus hours per day and wonder... Could I ever do something like that? What exactly does it take to race the tour? Physiologically, mentally, and spiritually, that's what we're talking about today. Each day, these phenomenal athletes race an event that would shatter most of us in a single day. But then they also have to contend with answering reporters' questions, pleasing sponsors, transferring between hotels, trying to eat enough food to cover the day's expenditures, and finally, and perhaps most importantly, trying to get some sleep. It's a feat that's hard to comprehend. So today, we'll try to give a sense of what it takes to race the Tour. We'll cover, first, an overview of the Tour from a numbers perspective, and why the numbers really don't tell the tale. Second, our guest, Kieran O'Grady, will explain his role as a Tour team physiologist and coach with Dimension Data. Number three, we'll discuss the many challenges of the Tour outside of racing, including not only what I mentioned above, but also not missing the bus how to handle the food, what happens when you get sick. Number four, why getting dropped by the Peloton doesn't make for as easy a day as you might think. Number five, what happens to the riders physiologically over the three weeks and why, in essence, it's simply a controlled burnout. Number six, how riders try to recover day to day, especially when they're dealing with injuries. Number seven, how riders train for the tour and why having incredible endurance comes first. Then we'll take a deeper dive into how the different types of riders prepare from GC contenders to stage hunters to domestiques. And finally, we'll try to pull it all together and talk about what us mere mortals should and should not take from tour riders, whether we're preparing for a weekend race or a three-day stage race. Our primary guest today is Karen O'Grady, one of the team physiologists for the Dimension Data World Tour team. Along with Karen, we catch up with one of our favorite guests, Brent Bookwalter of Mitchelton Scott. Brent has now completed nine Grand Tours, so he had a lot to say about what it's like getting through 23 grueling days of racing and two rest days. We also talked with Hushang Amiri, a former Canadian national and Olympic coach who runs the Pacific Cycling Center. He's coached tour athletes and had a few thoughts to share on getting athletes ready for a Grand Tour. So get your bidons and your new sets and your baguettes and your crepes. Let's make it fast. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. And as we uh, discussed several episodes ago with Kate Courtney, Whoop is making headway into the professional athlete space. Kate herself is a big proponent of the, the strap. We've had Colby Pierce and Frank Overton, two prominent coaches in the Boulder area that are uh, big fans of the device. Trevor is a big fan of the device because it is an effective tool for training and recovery. I even bumped into Dr. Andy Pruitt, who actually had, as I remember, devices on both wrists that were tracking heart rate. One of them was definitely a whoop. 
And if you think about that, some of the best athletes, cyclists, coaches, and uh, cycling experts in the world are using the Whoop strap. Whoop is the performance tool that is changing the way people optimize their training and recovery. Whoop provides a wrist-worn heart rate monitor that features detailed app-based analytics and insights on recovery, strain, and sleep. Whoop tracks sleep quality and heart rate variability 100 times per second, 24 hours per day, to help you know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest. You can also use the strap to track workouts and get strain scores that let you know how strenuous the training was on your body. Whoop helps you optimize your sleep based on how fatiguing your day was and tracks sleep performance with insight into your sleep quality, stages of sleep, and consistency. To make things better, Whoop just released the new Whoop Strap 3.0, which includes a suite of new hardware and app features. The Whoop Strap 3.0 now has five-day battery life, an improved strap, and live heart rate monitoring. A handful of new in-app features, including the new Strain Coach, improve the way you track and plan your training and recovery. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K. Just go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and use the code FASTTALK at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you train. So you've heard him on Fast Talk before. It's great to have Kieran O'Grady back on the podcast. Welcome, Kieran. Hi, guys. Thank you very much for having me again. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Today, we really want to dive into what could be considered one of the most demanding sporting events in the world, I got to say. The Tour de France, 21 stages, brutal, demanding in every sense of the word, physiologically, psychologically, mentally, spiritually, everything about it is just stressful. It just, it's just, it, from a, from a, <laughs> from a journalist point of view, it's stressful. I can't imagine what it's like to be there trying to perform every day, stay healthy, ride that hard, do it again the next day, do it again the next day, do it again the next day, and on and on. Meanwhile, deal with all of the other things that you have to deal with as an athlete, especially if you're wearing a jersey or winning a stage or battling for the overall and, and having to deal with people like myself and Fred Dreyer sticking a microphone in your face 30 seconds after you've just punished yourself up Alp d'Huez. So we want to talk about the Tour de France and the demands of Grand Tours. So we're uh, glad Kieran O'Grady, who works with Dimension Data, can be here to join us and fill us in on the other side of the Tour de France. So let's start with giving a little bit of the flavor of the Tour de France from the numbers side of things. You know, the numbers don't tell the full story, obviously, but Kieran, maybe you could fill us in, give us give us some sense in terms of the data that the guys in the Tour de France are are putting out. Compared to everyday cyclists and mere mortals, it's it's absolutely aston astonishing what these guys go through over those 21 stages. So over the whole three weeks, they'll be averaging around sort of 95 to 100 hours of racing, and that's sort of not include anything extra that they might do in you know in terms of warming up uh, for time trials and things like that, rest day rides, 3,500 to 3,800 kilometers. That's a lot of riding over you know undulating terrain. Some of that's sort of flatter stages in terms of the energy demands you know you're looking at six sixty thousand to eighty thousand kilojoules over the whole three weeks um, obviously that depends on things like the size of the rider the role of the rider someone who's possibly more a domestique might burn 
you know, 75 to 80,000 kilojoules easily just because they're going to be in the wind a lot more. And then when it gets hilly, they're pushing out a lot more to get over the climbs and, and daily basis. They could be over 4,500 kilojoules, 5,000 kilojoules of energy just just trying to survive in the mountains. But consider then, you know, when you look at the, the average power over the, the 21 stages, it can be as low as 170 watts for for some light climbers who are who are protect, in protected roles who spend a lot of the time in the wheels protected and then just have those sudden moments of very very high power outputs but on on the most they're they're sort of well they're going to have more absolute lower absolute powers anyway being being a lot lighter but and then the the bigger domestiques might have average powers over the 21 stages of about 250 260 watts which doesn't sound like much but that's a it's a lot of you know if you're holding that for 110 hours it's going to certainly add up in terms of physiological load yeah we were going to ask about that because i actually found a really interesting recent study that just came out last year that showed some of the numbers for a typical tour rider so they they analyzed all the data for for nine riders at the tour de france all on the same team and the numbers were something that you would you know i would expect to see doing a local race um so for example the flat stage tended to average around 196 watts in a flat stage of the tour. So that works out to about 2.68 watts per kilogram. For the hilly stages, 217 watts. For the mountain stages, 254. This doesn't seem extraordinary. Yeah, uh, I would agree with that. It, when you look at it on paper like that as a, as a pure average, you know, you, you would think, oh, I can do that. But when you when you look into the files of these these riders, and I would take someone like Bernie Eisel, for example, who might be covering moves at the start of a start of a stage, so he's going to have some pretty high power outputs to to sort of close gaps and and monitor riders going off the front at the very beginning. But then for the middle two three hours, you know everything kind of gets a bit more sedate. So once the breakaway is formed for the day, and you know all of the big GC teams and controlling teams are are happy with that composition, they're going to protect that time gap and, and just ride to a steady tempo. So anyone who's in the bunch can actually just tick along quite nice, nicely as long as it's not a super hilly stage. And then you kind of get an, an inverted U, uh, sorry, a U-shaped power output profile. So very hard at the beginning, more sedate in the middle. And then towards the final hour of racing, kicks back up again. So it, it's kind of offset. The average is the sort of middle. So it goes very, very hard when it does go hard. And then they, they do take it quite easy when they don't need to. It's almost kind of a training pace, huh? Yeah, yeah, and uh, just ticking over. You look at some of the some of the files, and you think, you know, if you were just to, to take out a section of them in the middle, where possibly after a feed zone, things can look fairly easy. And you would think that this was a section of a rest day file, but then you zoom out and you see that it's part of a a six hour slog. But it's just one moment of downtime. But um, everything's tactical. If someone's taking it easy, there's probably someone on the front who's who's sort of ticking over at 280 to 300 watts, which will tick along the bunch and just pull everyone along at a, at a lot lower power. So the kind of average powers are, there's always going to be someone who's working hard, but it's kind of offset against everyone else. The other thing they had in this study that, that really surprised me, which you're talking to, is they analyzed all these riders' data in terms of, uh, the, they put it into a, the three zones. So your zone one being your, your easy base pace type riding your zone three being that really high intensity and then zone two being that that in between so the sweet spot or no man's land and looking at flat hilly and even mountain stages riders were spending 70 percent or more of their time in zone one 
at, at just that slow training pace. You know, the majority of this is a is an incredibly endurance event. It's it's over 90 to 100 hours, so it's it's going to have to be prolonged sub threshold pace. It's 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 inevitable that, that that's going to happen. So when you look at the time spent above threshold for for a lot of these guys, it's sort of round about 10 to 15 percent of the total time. So you know, it doesn't sound like much, you know, on paper, but when you add it up over the course of 21, uh, 21 stages, it, it, it's a fair old physiological whack. <laughs> a fair old physiological whack. I like it. That's the tour in a nutshell. Brent Bookwalter with Mitchelton Scott has become such a feature of Grand Tours that this morning when I turned on the tour instead of editing this podcast like I should have, I could have sworn I saw Brent on the front of the field. So now that I've quoted a study and made it sound by the numbers, like the tour is not that hard. Let's hear from someone who actually has a right to talk about the demands of the tour. Oh, physiological demands of the tour are just massive. Yeah, I think the the sort of cliched analysis of that, you know, versus the other Grand Tours is that, you know, maybe the Tour de France is similar or even less than the Giro or other Grand Tours. And it's always the, it's the nerves and the stress and the sponsor pressure and the, the heightened microscope of the tour that makes it so selective and so dramatic and difficult. But I think that's true to some extent, but that, yeah, you can't take away from just the massive load of the tour. You know, if you look at the, the just the general template and the hours and the volume um, and then the intensity and how far every, you know, almost every meter of every one of those stages fought, it's just a huge, huge intensity load. It's a huge volume load. And you can really feel when you're in that race that it is the world's best cyclists all on the best form of the season, many of the best form of their lives. It, it's such a, such a deep field. So I guess my question is, when you watch the commentators, they're always talking about the strategy and when is somebody going to attack and, and when is this going to happen? When is that going to happen? From experience, how much of the race is about racing the event and how much of it is about getting through, about surviving? Yeah, definitely. I think that depends on who you ask and what their role is in the race and um, at what phase of the race you're in. I think if I look back to my first tour in 2010, you know, I'd say at least, yeah, at least half of the race, if not more, was about surviving. <laughs> it was, it was uh, just a massive battle of survival. And then with that, a desire to want to contribute and support my teammates and our team leader as much as I could too. So it's this dynamic of like panicking to get my head above water. And then as soon as I get my head above water, using everything I got and then just be sinking, drowning again, and then scrambling to get up to the surface and then just get pushed under again. And I think that's sort of lost. I think because, because everyone is in such good form and the, the line is so fine and it's so competitive and the stakes are so high, you know, everything at the tour is so calculated and you know, efforts aren't wasted and risks, you know, the long bomb isn't really thrown as much as maybe it is in other races because there is so much riding on it. And this is, this is the livelihood we're talking about of us athletes. And this is the, the future and the security of these teams and these organizations that employ, you know, hundreds of people. So it, it, it needs to be tactical and it needs to be very thought out because there isn't a room to, to be unthoughtful with your effort or, um, you know, rash with a decision. Did you ever have moments where you were just sitting there going, I'm not sure I'm going to last another hour. And then your team manager gets on the radio and asks you to do something crazy. And, and you somehow were able to dig deep and do it. hundred <laughs> percent. I think that's, uh, that's the reality of a grand tour. And that's what, 
that's what makes them so amazing and beautiful when you're on the other side of them is, is realizing what you've accomplished physically and mentally that you didn't think was possible. And that it's just that, that sort of phenomena that happens over and over. It's a lot of, a lot of comeback from the dead moments. And it's just a huge testament to what the, the mind and the body are capable of and, and the willpower. It's a huge battle of wills, I think, with each rider within themselves and then also amongst each other. It's who's, who's giving up first, who, who, yeah, who throws in the towel first. And since, like I said, the, the level is so high and the competition is so deep and every, there's so much anticipation and so much buildup and, you know, everyone knows it's, it's the center stage, it's the biggest stage, and you never know if it's the last one. Maybe it's the last one you're ever going to do. Um, so much heart and soul and grit is poured into it. It doesn't make sense. I don't know <laughs> when I think about the moments that I pulled myself out of in those races and how I've gotten through to, from one day to the next, it doesn't seem like it's possible, but, but somehow it is. And I guess that's to a large extent, that's the beauty of it. And hopefully in some way or some even small percentage that's captured and shared with the fans. Cause I think that it's something everyone can, can sort of marvel at and hopefully enjoy. So how do you make yourself do that? How, when you're, you're that fatigued and, and that tired and you've got a job to do, how do you make yourself do it? Use all my tricks. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, some of it is, some of it is we are hardwired. You know, you see that, you see that with guys bouncing off the ground and crashes. You know, we're, we train and train and focus and focus and mentally prepare and physically prepare for so long that, you know, you see a guy hit the ground, even break a bone, rip a bunch of skin off their body, and they're still like back on the bike, even if they shouldn't be before you can, someone can even get a second to check them out. So I think, you know, when I'm in those hard moments and I feel like I'm up against the world and I can't do any more, there's still like this sort of subconscious drive and sort of some of it's maybe innate, not trained, natural. Maybe some of that's what makes us able to race at the professional level, but it's also something that's trained and, and worked on and, and practiced and crafted for after years and years and years and, um, you know, thousands of hours on the bike and pushing through, you know, really hard training sessions and and, and having the meaning there, knowing that it is so much more than myself. It's for my team. It's for what we're trying to accomplish greater than oneself. Um, and even deeper than that, it's it's also for, you know, my whole team. It's for my family that has kept me going and pushed me along the whole way. And it's for, you know, my coaches and doctors and my physical therapists who have pieced me back together when I've been hurt and my mental trainers that I've worked with and my friends that have a beer with me and counsel me and console me when it's all when it's all seems like it's gone bad, it's for all those, uh, you know, all those hours that you sort of have to dig into those and tap into that and and know you're doing it for just more than, more than just, uh, just a a sporting performance. That's a great way to think about it. Let's get back to the show and hear what Dr. O'Grady has to say about this year's tour. Stages that are interesting, for example, would be like stage five of this year coming up. There's there's three climbs in the last last 75k, and and they're all pretty long with pretty hairy descents. So, it's going to be an exciting one to watch, and and just to see how the riders then play that. Who's in the break? Whether a team puts puts riders up the road ahead of ahead of the game to try and have some cards to play later in later in the race if everything comes back together. Uh, you might have a, a, a set of fairly fresh legs from from the breakaway instead of. A rider who's spent the whole day in the peloton fighting up those climbs, fighting for positions on those narrow roads. So it's it's all it's all a big game of chess with regards to what what happens on which stages. But the sprint stages are kind of are generally seen as the most simple stages tactically. Break goes away, 
gets X amount of minutes, um, usually quite a, if it's a fairly, fairly flat stage and, and no problem for the sprinters teams to control, then they'll, they might get upwards of eight, nine, 10 minutes of a time gap that will just slowly be pulled back and then towards the sprint finish at the end. So you said the, the sprint stage is, is fairly simple. There, there's a breakaway that goes. I've always wanted to ask this from somebody who's working on the inside. Every team really wants that breakaway to happen, right? Because that's when the field's going to slow down. Until that breakaway goes, it's quite, as you said, you're putting on a lot of high wattage. You're, you're responding to a lot of attacks. So there, there's an advantage to having a breakaway up the road, correct? Yes. Yeah, massively. It, it's got to be the right sort of composition. And that your, your viewpoint on what the right composition of the breakaway is would depend on what team you're in. So there'd be some, pretty much all the small, all, all the French teams, all the wild cards would want to be in those breaks on the, on the flat stages. That's a lot of TV time and that's a lot of real publicity for those sponsors. Um, so that's, that's invaluable for them. That's gold dust. But you also don't want any, anybody that could also potentially launch a late move from a breakaway and just, just trying to make sure that then they're sort of fairly good caliber, that they're actually going to last the distance. Um, they're not going to blow up. 30k from from the uh, from the finish and then then everything status quo again and it all gets aggressive again but you can you have some some days where on the sprints everything goes uh, in the first move and four guys go up the road and all the teams look at each other and they'll go yep this is this is the right break for today we can we can take it easy now and then the the problems happen is when 80% of the teams are happy but then two teams then say no we don't like that we we're, we're going to chase it down and then it gets brought back together and then another group goes up the road and it's like sort of constantly rolling the dice and just saying, no, don't like that, no, don't like that. And until you get the one that you do. So it, you kind of need to have that group consensus and, or then if it was just maybe one team that doesn't like it and they're not strong enough to really bring it back, then they've got to kind of live with it for the whole day and know that they've, they've kind of not done their job properly. So as I was going to ask you is though, is, is there any discussion and negotiation between the teams? A lot of the time that that discussion will be done through the team captains. Um, so on the, the road captains themselves, they'll kind of make the call because they're, they, you know, they'll be talking to each other. They might have discussed before the stage. It doesn't sound like they, ha they have a meeting, like a roundtable discussion, but it'll just be in that start zone chit chat that you might, you might hear that this guy wants to go in the break or Thomas de Gent might want to go in the break. And then everyone kind of goes, oh yeah, okay. So when Thomas de Gent moves, then he's likely to get in the break or, or something like that. So. You, there's there's always those discussions and then if generally if there's any big problems then that's when the um, team directors from the cars will radio through and say okay no this guy's dangerous or we don't want this breakaway gone it's not the right composition and and that that will be chased down what role are you playing on a day-to-day -day basis during the tour uh, it seems like uh, from the outside as a physiologist a lot of your work is geared towards getting the guys ready to be at the tour but what are you doing once the, the tour has started? So at, at Dimension Data, we have kind of different roles for each race. So, some, so there'll always be a, a lead physiologist, lead sports scientist on the race. And uh, for the tour this year, it's, it's Dr. Daniel Green. Um, so he's going to be heading up. He's going to be there. One of our primary roles is running the time trial days. So we plan everything on the time trial days, make sure it runs without a hitch. And, and there are any problems on that day, it kind of, the buck stops with us. We've, we've not done something right, probably. But then on a the more day-to-day, -day, on the normal stages, we, we monitor the weight of the athletes. We look at their power files. So generally, the, the lead physiologist will send out a report that day with 
an analysis of the, the rider's files and how they did, along with a comment from the rider and a comment from the DS, just so we can get a full overview of what happened that stage. And then me personally, I will be sort of just monitoring the riders that I will work with as a sort of more detailed description and I'll be discussing with them usually over over Skype or if um, I'm going to be there for a few stages so it will be sort of face-to-face discussions and it's all, all, always important to have those face-to-face discussions so that when you are talking about a stage you can kind of look in their eyes and and see uh, do they mean what they're saying or are they just they're just trying to tell you what they think you want to hear so that's always important but generally it's 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 all about performance analysis so that brings up an interesting point, of which we haven't talked about yet, which are all of those demands that don't happen on the bike, all of the demands off the bike, interviews they might have to do, the transfers after the stages, some short, some long, sleeping in foreign beds every night, injuries that might come up. It seems like it would be really hard to quantify the impact of all of those things, but it seems like it has a massive impact on how well each rider is doing day to day. Could you give us a sense, Kieran, of the the impact, the the substance there and, and how you deal with it? Yeah. So I mean it's 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 a massive sort of under underappreciation of, of what these guys go through on a day by day by day basis. So this one that for example is Criterium de Dauphine stage eight. Yeah, the you know the riders would wake up at whatever time they really want to, but the as long as they're down at breakfast by breakfast time, which, you know, for example, is 9.30, then usually if they're changing hotels, they'll have to bring down their suitcase. So that means that they've got to kind of pack up everything. Some riders are messier than others. So some riders are quite quick at packing. Other riders, I, I look in their rooms and think, how are you going to get all this together in some sort of a semblance of, a, of an order? But they manage it anyway. And then, so for example, they might get suitcases down to the bus Quarter to eleven, they might drive to the hotel. At, uh, drive to the to the start from the hotel at eleven o'clock, and then sign-ons are usually around midday. So as long as it's not sort of super super long stage, you know this one was quite short. For example, one hundred thirteen k. So they signed on at midday, and then the neutral start was quarter to two. But in you know in that time, there's a lot of prepping on the bus, getting ready, making sure the radios are, are sort of comfortable and secured making sure if they need to repin their numbers or restick them some of them have sticky adhesive on the back there's always the decision of what uh, what clothing to wear i heard it joked that the day the day that a rider knows exactly what to wear on a stage is the day that they've retired because there's always that that indecision uh you know this guy's wearing his arm warmers do i wear my arm warmers or do i put on my base layer it's it's a bit of mind game sometimes with what what you do wear um you know, the whole leg warmers in the classics and if you're, if you're just doing a training race sort of thing. But, you know, the demands, of the, the demands of the morning are fairly slow, but then once they get going, then they race. But once they finish, it's, if they've done anything in the, in the stage, they'll, you know, they'll be pressed. There'll be a couple of hours of, of interviews. And then there's also team interviews. So social media guys from the team will probably want to get a video or some comments that will be put out. So I feel like these guys just race and then get cameras stuck in their face, but that's that's kind of part of the job. That's what. Sorry, guys. Sorry, yeah. that's me. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's important part. It's got to happen. I think some of these guys want want to be juniors again so that they don't have to do it, deal with it. But I think there are there are you know some guys that are great about it and will just happily do it and and know when to say say no if they really don't want to do an interview. They just say no, not today, and and. And head to the bus instead of just being a grumpy interviewer. Yeah, right. But, um, I'm sure you've had yep, a fair few yep, of them. Yeah, 
but probably probably what most people don't don't realize with the demands that you don't consider is the amount of logistics that go on teams might have four to five sometimes six cars going a bus a truck um usually there's a there's a catering truck as well um and then any sort of special guests that do do attend the race might have their own car so there's a fierce logistics and trying to not forget someone is actually quite a real challenge you know you want to make sure that when you've when you've left the hotel you know you've you've had a discussion with the with the director sportif you've made the plan for the next day i'm leaving this hotel at this time with this car with these two riders and if you leave the hotel without one of those even if they've come up and said you know oh, i'm going to go in in this other ds's car then you need to 100% make sure that they are leaving in their car because if it's not in the plan and that director then just says okay I've got these two riders who are originally supposed to be in my car then that rider can be stuck at the hotel so you could end up a real home alone situation where rider waking up going guys where, where is are the are team <laughs> uh, yeah 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 but the thing is they've probably brought all the uh, all the race food and the goodies with them as well the snacks and and stuff is probably left with all the soigneurs so yeah, they might they might not be too happy after a couple of hours. Mm. Has that ever happened? Are you aware of a, a rider being left at the hotel? Oh, it's, it's, it's bound to have happened. I, I can't think of an example off the top of my head. There's a famous example of Contador getting left at the hotel, but there were some team politics going on at the time. So that wasn't necessarily because he was wasn't forgotten. That accident? was No, there was Lance Armstrong was also on the team. And supposedly, and maybe this doesn't go into the podcast, or maybe it does. I don't know how well this story has been vetted. But um, yeah, supposedly it was intentional that they left him behind. And um, there was some people that say, oh, his brother slash agent Fran was going to take him to the start. And, and then Contador's people were saying, no, you left me at the start intentionally. So I'd miss the start, et cetera, et cetera. So again, maybe that doesn't, uh, <laughs> maybe that's not um, the best example because it's not about just, oh my God, we forgot. Bernie Eisel, <laughs> we forgot about Mark Cavendish at the hotel. Somebody go back and get him quick. It's a, yeah, it's a very real challenge that, that you've really got to make sure that you have everyone at the race. So, so the story I heard, I don't know if this is an urban myth or not, but this was, um, I'm blanking on his name right now, but a big Australian sprinter who, who retired about five, six years ago. Late in his career, he was at the Giro d'Italia and there was a young rider on the team who he had taken under his wing. So before the, the start of the stage, he, he sat down at a coffee shop right beside the, the course with this kid to, to talk with him for a little bit. And while they were talking, the field passed by the, the coffee shop. <laughs> they realized they had missed the start. Oops. So he just looks at the kid and goes, we're in for a hard day. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the pro racing, kid. <laughs> and apparently the two of them did a, a team time trial for 80 kilometers or something like that until they finally caught the field. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a long day. Yep. So what are some of the other challenges that, that the riders have to get through day after day in order to survive an event like this? So we talked about the transitions, packing up every day because they're almost in a different hotel every time. They, they finish a stage, they're hurting, and then they have... Uh, cameras put in their face and microphones put in the face are there any other big challenges that they're they're dealing with or after that is it go home get a eating. massage eat eating. and go to bed yeah i was gonna say i was gonna say you stole you stole my uh you stole my uh, suggestion i was gonna say eating it's you know you'd think these guys would be able to to eat no problem but sometimes just after racing so much you, you, it's really struggling to to keep your appetites and to bring in the amount of calories that these guys need to replenish after a stage 
after each stage, we, we emailed them with a uh, recommendation in terms of nutritional um, guidance for the rest of the rest of the evening and, and hydration and stuff. But you'd be amazed at how much calories these guys have to take in, even though they've eaten on the bike. You know, most of it's sort of in the extreme or very high carbohydrate intake um, just to replenish and recoup, especially if the next day is is a tough mountain stage or something or, or a short, sharp stage. But just simply taking in that amount of energy is, I don't want to say superhuman, but it's its incredible what these guys do. But they're constantly eating, constantly grazing, you know, nibbling. And the food room uh, is, is generally a soigneur's room that's kept open all the time and it's stocked with sort of nibbles and food and grains and nuts that the riders can go in and uh, just just grab whatever they want if it's after dinner and they just want something to snack on before before bedtime then they can go in and and replenish the the stores there so everything's tried to be managed as much as possible but it's it's always a challenge do they run into digestive issues trying to consume that much food every day Yes, yeah, massively so. But that's where having a good uh, team chef comes in. So we've we've got two two team chefs that work with uh, with the team over the Tour de France, and they'll keep the palates really varied, so that there's there's always some new flavors, but everything's very digestible. You know, we have Tom van der Gracht, who's a great, experienced chef. He he knows exactly what the riders will need, and he works with our sports nutritionists to make sure that that's the right timing, type, and quantity of of food. It can be when, when a rider does, you know, sometimes they just pick up a stomach bug from someone, I don't know, a fan who they shook hands with or, or, or had a selfie with. Then that's when problems start because if they decide, yeah, I want to see if I can continue and, and push through this, then, you know, these guys are doing huge stages, burning huge amounts of calories, but not really able to take anything back in and you know absorb the nutrients completely so it, it can be a real challenge about how how do you then try to fuel these guys so a lot of the riders turn to very plain foods very simple so move away completely from race foods very high energy foods to more traditional what a more normal person might eat and whole foods sandwiches and things like that smoothies are quite a popular one if, if you do have digestive issues but yeah Usually, if a rider is going to get over it, they'll they'll have a couple of days of of hell, and then they're they're starting to come back. If they got a stomach bug, so what? Deal with it. You you keep racing. Yeah, well, it's 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 a big call of of the doctors whether whether they do continue. Um, so they'll be they'll be looking at it from the rider's health point of view and saying, is this going to do them damage? You know, if if the answer is no, and they can just suffer through and and push through whatever a bug or something that that's not going to have any any um sort of prolonged negative impact on the rider they they'll they'll give them the green light and say okay you're going to you're going to suffer but you're not going to do any damage and this is the stuff that's going on every day that the casual fan doesn't often think about or see because these guys are in their own little private hells dangling at the back of the peloton just trying to get through the stage and it's very rare when something like this is visible. Case in point, Tom Dumoulin taking his pants down on the side of the road at the Giro a couple of years ago and having his issues, but it's usually not so visible like that. But I bet you're dealing with this almost every day at the tour. Yeah, yeah. And 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 to a lesser extent, on a, every stage race, there's there's always problems whenever you're racing back-to-back days like that. And you know, we had a one rider who had a pretty rough Giro d'Italia with a bit, bit of illness, stomach illness um, this year. And 
I have I must have had oh, 250 voice notes over the three weeks just because to to simply type was just too much you know too much stress almost so just to hold hold down the record button and and just uh, talk was a lot easier for him and and you know it was good because he he, he then managed to just ramble and and a lot of the, the sort of true feelings came out so when when everyone switches off their telly and the stage is over that's when that's when a lot of the the hard work starts with with the team and support mm. staff and yeah, I guess one other thing to, to point out that a lot of people don't realize is you think in the race, the riders are very well supported. And if you're at the front, that's true. You have the caravan behind you. But if you're one of those riders who gets popped on the mountain stage three hours from the finish, you're outside the caravan, you're on your own. And my understanding is a lot of them are, are handed a water yeah. bottle as they go past their team car. And that's what they have to survive on for the two, three hours to the finish. Yeah, you you never want to be in that situation as a rider. That's it's it's not a good feeling, and it's it's okay if you've got a a groupetto, and then maybe you know one team will sacrifice a team car that will stay behind and just have loads of bottles and some spare wheels, you know, rim brake, disc brake, just to kind of be a almost a neutral support for that for that groupetto. But generally, when when a sole rider is dropped early or something. And they can't make it back. That's a soul destroying day. It's it, and it's it's a physiologically tough day as well because you've no shelter, you've absolutely no support. There's no one to well, unless someone does drop back with you and tries to pace you on. But then it, then you kind of start to burn two guys instead of just one guy. So it's it's a call by the directors. Do we sacrifice this guy and in, in the hope that he may or may not come back, or do we burn another guy who may be important for that stage or or the next stage? just to try to help this guy get back on it, yeah it's it's a it's sometimes a, a game of massive emotional chess whoop is the performance tool that is changing the way people optimize their training and recovery whoop provides a wrist war and heart rate monitor that features detailed app-based analytics and insights on recovery strain and sleep Whoop tracks sleep quality and heart rate variability 100 times per second, 24 hours per day to help you know when your body is recovered or when it needs rest. You could also use the strap to track workouts and get strain scores to let you know how strenuous the training was on your body. Whoop helps you optimize your sleep based on how fatiguing your day was and track sleep performance with insights into sleep quality, stages of sleep, and consistency. To make things better, Whoop just released the new Whoop Strap 3.0, which includes a suite of new hardware and app features. The Whoop Strap 3.0 now has five-day battery life, an improved strap, and live heart rate monitoring. A handful of new in-app features, including the new Strain Coach, improve the way you track and plan your training and recovery. Whoop has provided an offer for Fast Talk listeners to get 15% off their purchase with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K, so two T's, no space. Just go to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com. And use the code FASTTALK at checkout to save 15% off and optimize the way you train. Maybe we now take a little bit deeper dive into the physiological impact of Grand Tour, of the Tour de France, of a stage race like this, and talk about the effects on the body over the three weeks. Are we talking about a steady decline? Are we talking about you come in a little bit rested to hope to to peak and in that third week, what are the demands that we're talking about from a, from a more specific level here? Yes. So 
a lot of that will depend on what the role of the rider is and whether they need to be performing at a specific time in the in the tour. They need to be a sprinter who's ready for the first few stages. They will come in quite fresh, but with with lots of intensities in the in the last few days, just to make sure that that peak power is is firing properly. But generally, for the for the Grand Tour winners and the the sort of top twenty guys, they will they will almost come into it with the idea that they'll they'll be a bit undercooked, but the first two weeks will bring them up in terms of performance. But I say bring them up, but for a lot of them, it's not not reducing performance as much as anyone else. So for example, you know, most most athletes will decline massively in, in performance over the over the three weeks. Um, there's just in, an inevitable, it's not really burnouts, but it's it's just an overwhelming fatigue that uh, that that accompanies the the three weeks of racing. So, you know, your power outputs might drop forty, fifty watts um, across the board just just because you've been doing it for three weeks. So, but a Grand Tour winner might, you know, they don't lose anything, or they might lose five to ten watts or something. So, it's always a challenge of trying to to get through it as fresh as possible. The neurological fatigue and the the resting heart rate changes that we see over the course of the the, the tour, it does just indicate that. Depending on the role of the rider, some of them are quite quick. If if they're event, you know, a domestic that's working very heavily in the first few sprint stages and the lead outs and in the chase downs, then uh, then yeah, that will start to load fairly quickly. And it's the the, the director sportive's role to to then take the information that we feed from them. Um, you know, this guy is 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 getting pretty cooked. Maybe take it easy on him the next day, give him a bit more of a a, a freelance role, and and just see how he feels. It's an important management tool to look at the physiology and how it changes and, and the fatigue of the riders. So you brought up a really interesting point, that whole neurological fatigue. And I've read about that, that you, as you said, you see the resting heart rate go up. You also see a big heart rate depression in the race. By the end of the tour, guys, just their heart rate won't come up to anywhere close to, to what used to be their max values. I also just downloaded an interesting study that showed that for the couple of weeks after the tour, riders' power is way down. It does seem like it's almost a, a bit of a controlled burnout or, or overreach. Yeah, no, I think I know the paper that you're on about. Uh, yeah, really nice study just looking at the, the performance testing before and immediately before and, and after the, the Grand Tour. And, you know, you see uh, VO2 max is down from sort of up in the 80s to down in the 75s. And everyone thinks that, you know, VO2 max is, is pretty pretty stable but that's a massive decline and that's that's a massive amount of fatigue from three weeks of racing and you can see it in in the heart rate suppression goes down by about you know approximately about 10-15 beats per minute across the riders that we can see what we also collect is sort of daily fatigue um, sort of subjective fatigue so the riders every morning and after each stage will will give us feedback through a um, an, an iphone app or, or an android app and that will be sort of muscle soreness, um, fatigue, motivation, things like that. So we can track as you go through a Grand Tour how that changes. Most are fairly obvious that as you go through a Grand Tour, the, the muscle soreness and fatigue will go up. But then you see as, as stages get changeable, um, you know, if you have a flat stage, the, the, the climbers might actually recover a, a lot better because they might be supported. They might have a very, very easy day. And then it's almost like a, an active recovery for three hours with a little bit of hard intensity at the end. So they come into that next stage feeling actually, you know, actually I'm okay now. I can then go again the next day. So it's it's a very individual thing about how how each rider recovers over the course of the three weeks. 
So one other question I have for you about the, the recovery side. You know, some of these stages are, are six plus hours. You're, you're really looking at a, a big part of your day actually being racing. So is there anything they would do in the actual race itself to start the recovery process even before the, the race is over? Yeah, so sometimes if, if the rider isn't necessarily needing a huge amount of high energy foods towards the end of a stage, they might start to bring in a lot more protein, um, maybe have a protein bar in the last hour of the race. But hydration in the last hour um, is, is quite a key one because if you're dehydrated at the end of a stage, it then takes even longer to kind of kick that recovery process in because the, the body is trying to recover from the dehydration. So if anything, it's just get make sure you're hydrated and, and get going there. But a lot of the riders will just chew a, a you know a cheeky protein bar and start to start to you know metabolize those amino acids and get them get them to the bases that are needed for for recovery. But also, for example, if it is a sprint stage and the rider's done their job already, they have a choice of do I stick with the bunch and potentially stay at 250 to 300 watts average or do I back off the back of the bunch and, and spin home at 100 watts but make sure I stay in the time cut so it can be quite a tactical decision by them to to sit up and say yep that's it I'm I'm done for today this is this is my cool down essentially into the into the finish so imagine that has to be really true for domestiques I mean when you're a rider who you know you're going to have many many days where you're sitting on the front killing yourself for several hours working for the team. If you have any opportunity to, to ride easy, you just don't care about your own time in the race. You're, you're just going to back off and, and keep it as easy as possible. So you're ready for the next time you're on the front with your tongue hanging down. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it is a big game of, of chess, sometimes sacrificing your own position and, and finishing minutes within the time cut is actually preferential from a, from an overall team point of view. I mean, there is the overall team classification, but that that's another story, but from a, a a rider rider functionality, if they can if they've done their job and they're not expected to do anything or not able to do anything more in the stage, then getting through the rest with as as little energy expenditure as possible. You know, you don't want someone to burn burn themselves out just trying to finish sixtieth and and actually help you know con contribute nothing to the win, but just so that they can say they finished sixtieth instead of finishing you know one hundred and twentieth and finishing within the time cut. So. It can be uh, quite tactical sometimes, and, and riders, some riders need reminding more than others. Mm. So in, in terms of other things that you might suggest to guys after the, the stage, I assume that you're, everybody's getting massage on a daily basis. Are there other things that you're doing to uh, enhance recovery between these stages? Yeah, most people get massages. I know some riders who don't. Um, don't think there's anyone on our team who who doesn't get massages, but there are some some out there who don't like them and just just get on with it without massage. But after a massage or even before the massage on the bus home, they might whip out some Normatec boots, which are like cryotherapy um, sort of compression boots that will um, help speed up the recovery process. We work with the doctors a lot to make sure that they get the right sort of nutrients and and supplements after the stage. So protein bottles are made up uh, ready for the rider specific to them based on you know their weight and and how much protein they need following the following the race each each one year will work with a specific rider over the course of a grand tour so they'll know what the rider needs day by day so you know everyone thinks sports massage for a cycling stage race would be just legs but sometimes they need to address something in their back and their legs are actually fine but it's the problem in the back that 
might be referring down into the legs and causing more fatigue, more pain. So sometimes it's it, it can be quite interesting watching a, a sports massage going on at a tour because you're thinking massaging his shoulder, he didn't crash on his shoulder, but you, you talk to the swanier and they're like, oh yeah, he's, his shoulder was affecting this muscle which goes down and sort of switches off the glute, right glute, which is causing you know, the left leg to work a lot more than it should be. And so that brings up the question about the the more extreme recovery, which is you, you had a rider who crashed, they're injured, and they're continuing to race. What are you doing to help them continue to race uh, as close to their best as they can and recover from those injuries? Yeah, so a lot of treatment from the doctor, making sure that those wounds are clean and, you know, well-dressed each day because you don't want any infection. If you, if you get an infection in a wound, that, that can be a, a, a potential tour-ending incident. But if, if it's just a nice, clean wound that you can cover with, with some gauze and, and swabs, then as long as it's not too painful to sleep, because that's, that's probably the biggest thing. Once you're on the bike and moving, you can deal with the pain. But it's when you wake up in the middle of the night and you've stuck to the sheets and the reason you've woken up, woken up is because you've rolled over and pulled all of the scabs off your off your leg and side so the, the most challenging thing is probably the, the sleep aspect of, a, of an injury if it's just superficial skin but you know you hear some war stories of guys who have broken bones and just put kinesio tape over their shoulder and, and said yep yeah, i'm continuing it's two days left of the tour and i'm gonna i'm gonna muscle through cyclists are crazy we all know and it. Cycling for you. Uh, that, yeah. that gets us back to you. you. Mentioned the team as a sports psychologist. Has a psychologist ever just gone? They're voluntarily doing a three-week stage race. They're all nuts. You can't <laughs> help here. <laughs> it certainly might be different different levels of uh, of insanity. Okay, so let's talk about the training for the tour. And I think one of the things I want to ask you about first is going back to that study I mentioned at the the beginning of this conversation they show the sort of peak wattages these riders were putting out. It's a kind of a small version of a power duration curve. And when I looked at these numbers, I was frankly not that overwhelmed. So for example, their, their peak five second power was around nine. The, the biggest that they saw was about 982. You continue down the list. The biggest one minute power was 510 and, and believe it or not in the time trial get to five minutes, the biggest they were seeing was around 423 watts or 5.83 watts per kilogram. Get out to 20 minutes and you're seeing in the, the time trial in the mountain stages around 375 watts or 5.1 watts per kilogram. So I look at all of this and go, I can do all those numbers and I wouldn't last 30 minutes in the Tour de France. So it seems like training isn't about for, for a grand tour isn't about what's the biggest five minute, what's the biggest 20 minute power you can put out. It seems like the, the focus is elsewhere. Is that what are these riders doing when they're training? In order to sort of talk about the training process to get ready for the Tour de France, you need to, you need to sort of appreciate that it is, it's going to be a hundred hours. So one of the first training considerations that you need to, you need to sort of have in your mind, okay, they're going to need to be able to manage that train that pure volume on the bike so in the off in the the winter and the the base the base uh, phase of their training program they're probably going to have months where the, the training load is going to be 100 110 hours just to get that time on the bike and so that when they do a grand tour and have those 21 stages of 90 to 100 hours that they're not completely cooked by the end of it so you you build you build that sort of 
reception to the volume and then you can work on the intensity above that but most of these guys by the time they do a grand tour they've been pro for several years their their oxidative capacity their their endurance engine is going to be super well developed so simply doing 100 hours of you, you were seeing the average power power outputs it's it's fairly low as, as an average and then all you need to then work on is is their ability to to work under fatigue so when you are training you're going to be doing blocks of days and then doing you know i, I don't know if this is the technical term but this is what i call it it's, i'd call them dirty intervals so you you say okay three hours uh, you go out and ride for three hours at fairly sort of tempo pace burn x amount of kilojoules maybe 2500 3000 kilojoules and that's when you start your intervals so it's making sure that the body is able to work then under fatigue. And when you do that day by day by day and, and then have the proper recovery and sort of adaptive processes, you will be able to perform in a grand tour environment um, if, if you've got the genetic predisposition to do so as well. Uh, I like that name. I like the dirty interval name. So I watched one of the, the pro tour riders here in Boulder. I, I was watching some of his rides on Strava. And I noticed he had one that he did a few times where his coach would have him go out and, and do a couple category one climbs, not for him that particularly hard, but he'd go out and do a bunch of these climbs, get three, four hours in the legs. And then his coach would take him out and motor pace him for two hours. Same sort of ideas is get a little bit fatigued. And then we're going to, I'm going to take you out and make you just ride at 50, 55 kilometers an hour. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a extremely common technique. And especially in the last last couple of days before the tours, maybe uh, doing a, a slightly shorter one of those just as a, as a last physiological kick to to prime the engines for the first stage, especially if that's a rider who's really wanted to go out and, and do well in the first few stages. So I'm sure you're familiar with this study that came out in 2014 that uh, was put out by Dr. Pinot looking at six years of Pierre Roland's training. Are you, are you familiar with this one? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah fascinating study and they showed some of this that his so what they were calling his anaerobic numbers so his short duration powers five second power 30 second power one minute power they said really didn't change much over those six years as he built up to being a, a top 10 finisher at the tour what they showed was exactly what you were talking about was the volume over those six years went up 79 percent so just bigger and bigger volume and you really saw a development of that aerobic engine, that endurance side, that ability to resist fatigue. And one of the things they point out is he had these weeks that were extremely stressful, really hard, big volume, big intensity weeks. And they said at the start of this six years, he, he did only three of those in a year. By the time he was top 10 at the Tour de France, he was doing 11 of those training weeks in a year. So it seems like really the focus wasn't the let, let's you know build that big huge power it was more exactly what you're talking about is that resistance to the grind yeah yeah massively so there's there's not huge development in in sprint power that's going to be very very minor and and you know even the one minute power is going to be very small changes but the ability to then do the five to 40 minute efforts at a higher power out but that's when that that's where big changes are made and, and the endurance, um, that sort of two, three, four hour sort of sustainable power under fatigue. That's, you know, one of the biggest changes as a, as a pro tour rider will mature is just developing that, those long-term physiological changes that, that are more than you see on that, that annual basis. 
It's the compounding of adaptations that get made just year after year after year of, of training like a pro. So it's not really something that you can do for one year, train like a pro and expect to be at that level. It's got to be something that you've got to invest a lot of time to, um, you know, years and years and years of training and racing at that, that sort of intensity because you, you will train individual parts of the race, but there's, there's nothing that beats doing a grand tour and, and getting that physiological load that, that 21 stages of, of hard work will get you and then you recover and, and make that big jump forward. So a lot of riders then perform exceptionally well in stages, stage races or one-day races after the tours. Well, a short stage race after doing the tour has to feel like a quick walk in the park. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite nice for something. And for some riders, they, they quite like doing it because if you have a long gap after a, after a stage race, you can kind of get into a bit of a, a, a lull in your training that if you don't have something to focus on, you, you've spent three weeks racing hard where everything is planned on a day by day basis. And now you're, now you're on your own, you, you've got your training schedule, but you can, you can say that you feel tired and, and not necessarily do the intervals on a day because you don't have anything two, three, four weeks, weeks later where you kind of, you need to perform at. So sometimes having that race on the, on the horizon is, is a good feeling for some riders. Past Canadian national coach Hushang Amiri has not only worked with tour athletes, but he has worked with cyclists who have won stages and even won grand tours. We asked him what it takes to train for the tour. What really came across is just how advanced these riders need to be before they can even start preparing for a tour. You have trained athletes for grand tours, so my question to you is, as a coach, how do you train a, a, a cyclist differently when they're preparing for a grand tour? You know, athletes who are, they are on that level, they have already massive base. And without base, no one can do such a stage race. And as far as training goes, uh, it is not complicated. It is, as a matter of fact, maybe simplest thing to do is your training starts with loading phase. That, that loading phase has more volume than intensity, followed by week of recovery, we can call it, but still they do significant amount of volume during that recovery. And then race intensity and followed by short of recovery phase before they start the race. Sometimes some athletes, they try to detrain before they start of stage that they can get on the form middle of their tour, but some they do opposite. They, if it's a time trial on beginning, they wanna have a good time in GC that uh, they train a little bit differently. But generally speaking, is uh, the volume, loading, unloading, race intensity, recovery, and start the race. What sort of weekly volume are they doing? Weekly volume, depending on the uh, how far are they start before the race, it can be somewhere between 25 to 35 hours. So a lot. It is lots of hours on the bike. And it's not just six hours a day it will be two days of uh, six to eight hours and then followed by recovery day and then build from there is building within building when you have an athlete in the grand tour and you're talking with them most days what are you focusing on as the coach 
the athletes who race Grand Tour at that level, they they have full support, right? I play the role in preparation, but when the race is started, they are within their the environment and and within their support network within the teams, and those teams they have one or two physiologists they're monitoring all the aspects of fatigue training, and I am not much involved at that stages. And what I find, uh, because of amount of the uh, support they have, less interference, less input from the coach keep them more focused. And again, we are talking about the athletes who they are doing this at least for two decades, more than 20 years. They know exactly what they are doing and they know exactly how their body gonna function. Let's get back to the show and talk about the specific training for different rider types. Maybe we should talk a little bit about the differentiation of the the different types of riders, Kieran. So if you could give us a sense of the training leading up to the tour for a GC contender versus a stage hunter versus a domestique, I'm sure they're pretty varied. Yeah, massively varied. So start with the obvious GC contender they're going to have a fair idea of where their numbers are leading into into the tour from the preparation races, but they need to make sure that their long power, their sustainable power is up in a competitive bracket. And if it's not, they, they really need to work on getting that up, whether that's motor pacing, whether that's going out and doing an altitude camp. But it, it can change depending year on year, depending on how the rider is coming into into each race. If, if everything has gone on, on track, then it could be a fairly easy to plan preparation but most riders will have some sort of a setback whether that's a crash whether that's just a bit of illness that that means they've come into some of the pre pre pre-tour stage races a bit you know under par so they need to then go away to altitude go to a camp um, and do some do some big blocks of work to get that 40 minute to an hour power up and and able to do that repeatedly within within stages I was going to say that's the one number that I did see that just had my jaw drop. They they did a physiological test on Chris Froome after he won his second Tour de France, and they were showing his sustainable, so that FTP or forty minute one hour power upwards of, of six point four to six point seven watts per kilogram. It was just absolutely crazy. Yeah, the the sustainable power to weight ratios are pretty astronomical and to be to be getting your rider up above sort of 6.2 watts per kilo that's when you go from being an average run-of-the-mill pack rider to to then knocking on the door of being being a gc rider so that's the sort of if, if you can see that your rider is coming in above there then you're cautiously optimistic if if they're well above there then you're you're sort of rubbing your hands and saying okay this is this is a good sign so what about the the stage hunter do they train differently from a gc rider yeah, so a lot of them, you know, I work with uh, with some stage hunters who will be at this 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 Tour de France. A lot of it will be playing on their strengths. So knowing how they win stages, they'll usually stage hunters will will perform in a very specific way. So for example, you know, winning sprints from a reduced bunch or getting in the breakaway and motoring it and and making sure that that breakaway succeeds. So you you might look back at previous stages that have won from previous years. A lot of it is replication. So looking at, okay, this, this guy has held 40 minutes on the last climb, but then they've done their highest five-minute peak power output ever at the end of that. So it's slowly building up to that sort of level so that when they when they get to the tour or they get to the, the grand tour, they're able to do that. They're able to unlock that performance again, that there's 
it's not a huge jump from their norm. But from from the client, you know, from that breakaway stage hunter, anyone who's going through a stage win, usually you'll want to work on a, a on a kick or an attack. That's that's quite a a key part of it because you've either got to have the kick to get in the breakaway or to distance everyone else. There's no point being this big solid one hour power specialist if you can't get rid of anybody else and you'll just tow everyone to the line and, and be pipped on the line. So that's probably the the key focus for them. So it almost sounds like the the stage hunter it, it would would treat the tour in some ways like like a one day race. Like they'd have particular stages they would say that's a good stage for me and really focus on that stage and, and build the assets they they need for that particular stage to as you said deal with whatever the the key climb is and and then have that kick to drop everybody at the end or at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, they'll they'll have they'll have looked at the profile from long time out and and put asterisks next next to specific stages and say okay, I want to perform here. This is a good stage for me. I've looked at the demands. It's similar to what I've performed well on before and they might take it slightly easier the day before to kind of have fresher legs and and really put their all their eggs in that basket, but it can be tricky when the team has asked you to do something else the day before and, and, and you need to spend more matches than you might want to. So it's it's important to have a good overall team plan going into a, a, a grand tour or even just a stage race to make sure that everyone's happy with what they're doing. Now, what about the domestique, the person that's going to be spending a lot of time on the front in the wind and then finishing 20, 30 minutes down? What's what's their training like? So for the, for the domestiques in the tour... A lot of the preparation will be sort of fairly standard, you know, fairly similar to other stage races in the year. So there's nothing too specific that you might do, just making sure that their 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 power outputs across the board are fairly high. So a lot of them will be spending a long time on the front of the bunch. So making sure that they're not coming in with too much fatigue, making sure that they're fresh, making sure that there's no niggling injuries or illnesses that we need to take care of. But, but their, their physiological point of view will be built up across the stage because if they're a domestique in a tour, they've probably been a domestique in most other stage races that they've been in that year. So it's kind of the, the culmination of lots of steps up um, across, across the year. And then you wanted to talk a little bit about that, that real specialty event, the team time trial. Yeah, the team time trial, it's a, it's a magnificent beast, especially if you've got quite a varied team, if you've if you've got sprinters, if you've got a, a GC contender, and then also some domestiques, and that you know, if you've got one of everybody and, and some domestiques, then it can be quite a challenge to actually plan the TTT order and, and how long people are going to pull for at the front because you want to, you want to maintain as high a average speed as you can. So you know, sometimes it can be that you designate your GC man to stay at the back and and just say okay, your job is today, just not get dropped. Don't go through and contribute. Don't spend matches. You're not going to be able to keep the speed at the level that we need, but we don't want you to lose time. So it can be it can be quite an interesting one to plan for. But whenever you're riding a TTT bike that hard and that fast, even for these pro guys, it's always nervous. It's it's a super nervous day from from the, the pro team point of view because if something goes wrong, it, it affects your whole team. It's not like anyone else is safe. It, it, if there's a crash, it usually affects everyone else. Um, so it, it can be a lot of stress, but a lot of good fun when it does pull off well. All right. So now that we've discussed all of these demands and we've discussed how each different uh, rider type prepares for the tour, how does that all apply to us 
Trevor, me, some mere mortals out there, what should we take away from the training and the preparation that goes into these uh, pro riders preparation for the tour? And what shouldn't we take away from that? What shouldn't we do? It goes without saying these guys are professionals. This is, this is their job to be training a hundred hours a month and, and 30 hours a week and doing huge weeks. But for quote unquote, us mere mortals, it's uh it would probably set us back more than more than it would drive us along to do that sort of training because we're just not able to to assimilate those adaptations that are being made by the the stresses that we're putting your body under because you can you know if you have a week off work you can do a huge amount of volume in that week but then to make quality adaptations from that it's it's going to be extremely difficult because next week you're back at work there's a lot of stress you'll probably get ill um, after doing something like that. But I'm sure most people will kind of be saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember I remember the time that I had a big week and then I got sick the next Tuesday or something like that. But it's always important just to, just to be mindful of what your own limitations are. So if you know that you've got a very stressful job to try to try to accommodate that and, and just tone it down more than you see these training rides that the pros do. Don't try to replicate them. Just do sort of, 70% of what they're doing and that will probably be a, a, a fairly decent training load for you. Yeah, I think another important thing to bring up here when you're talking about the, the differences and this is going to impact training is, is we talked about the huge volume of a grand tour which means any given rider in the tour is going to be spending most of their time at, at pretty low intensity and they, when they do their efforts it's often pre-planned, but they're very specific and only when they really need to do those efforts. Where for the rest of us, you're doing a two and a half hour race on a Saturday or a Sunday, it's not going to be quite that controlled. You can really expect you're going to go to that two and a half hour race and it's going to be nonstop attacks and you're not going to get a ton of time of actually going slow. So that is going to require a, a different type of training. And Kieran, can you talk at all to that about what that sort of rider, those of us who are doing that nonstop attack two hour race versus the the grand tour rider, yeah, the sort of really aggressive racing, which is that that pure racing which I like, which is actually something that you can kind of see the pros do in the in the Velon series, which is good fun to watch but in with regards to training for that, you know you don't need to be able to complete three weeks of racing to do to do a two hour crit, but in order to be doing those super high power outputs at the end of two hours you've got to have been training for three four hours at some point in in your training cycle it's, it's going to be very difficult to perform at a super high level on anything lower than that and that doesn't mean that every ride your week that you do in a week needs to be three or four hours but you're going to have to need to have some aerobic base that hopefully you've built up over over a couple of seasons but the the sort of development that you might see in your training come depending on when you're when you're racing but you'd come and you'd start with slightly higher volumes and if you're i'm going to pluck a a, a duration an average weekly duration off the top of my head and, and just say okay if you're if you're available to do 15 hours a week maybe in the in the sort of base phase you might be doing that full 15 but as you get closer to the races you'll you'll back down and you might be doing a lot shorter sharper efforts because you've already built that that resilience, that that sort of ability to push hard for for two hours, without the those super high power outputs. But then when you back down the volume of your training and do do the shorter intensity rides, your your intensity goes up. Your ability to hit higher peak power outputs will go, but you won't lose the ability to ride hard for flat out for two two and a half hours. No, it's a really good point. 
I also imagine something else that the, is, is critical to Grand Tour riders that they really have to work on, that if I'm just racing on a Saturday and that's my one race in, in a week, it's far less important is really the, that, that whole recovery side after the race. Yeah, anyone who's done a, a sort of three-day stage race or even a back-to-back stage race, once you get past that first day and, and you kind of you're into your second race, second day, third day, you're, you'll feel that your body's almost on a roll. Um, and it's only after about seven days when that fatigue starts to really hit you. And if you can get through, get through a five day stage race without feeling like death, then, then it's pretty good going. But you know, you will feel on those last two days that, yeah, I'm not feeling as bad as I thought because your body's, your body's sort of in that sort of preparedness if you're doing it day on day your body's sort of ready constantly ready for the next stimulus because it's already come and that's where having replicated that sort of demand in a in a training environment so that it's not a fresh demand on your body when you get to the race so if you've done blocks you know longer blocks of training you know five day blocks where you've replicated not necessarily to the same intensity but replicated that day in day out riding 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 then when you get to the stage race, you won't, your body will uh, be sort of more accustomed to it than, than it would if you've just done sort of the two to three day blocks as you go through your training cycle. So you don't need to do the, the 40 hour training week that a grand tour rider is going to do, but what you can emulate is, is doing the, the three days in a row, tr- teaching your body how to handle it when it's fatigued from the previous day. Yeah. Yeah. Massively. So if you, if you do short intervals, then do them back to back on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And, and then have a rest day uh, on a Friday and, and then have a, a back-to-back day on the weekend. So it's sort of bunching up the rides to, to sort of link the physiological stress of those and try to try to mirror what your event demands are. So if you've got a multi-day stage race, take a look. Are there any shorter ones? Are there any longer ones? And try to try to undulate your week of, of training load based on, on what your event might look like. You know, then, then sort of get more and more sort of intensity-specific as you get closer to the to the event itself so there is something even for those of us who are doing a, a two three day stage race to train that fatigue ability the, that resistance yeah i would say you know it, even though it is three day stage race it's going to be ridden flat out so by the end of that third stage there will be guys who who haven't done that sort of back-to-back days just to acclimatize the body to it and they'll they'll be flagging because it's just unnatural for them so if if you've done blocks of riding before and and hopefully over several seasons you've built that up and and sort of done that more consistently so by the time you get to your your chosen goal event it's going to be like another training event so you you've got nothing new coming out and and sort of putting extra load on your body all right you probably remember this from last time kieran we like to give you 60 seconds to encapsulate everything that we've spoken about today give the listeners a take-home message so uh, from today's episode, what would you say people should take home with them? Grand tours are hard, it's furiously hard. When you see the riders uh, racing flat out for 21 days, there's a huge physiological impact that, that 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 entails. But there's also the hidden side, which a lot of people don't really fully estimate, you know, fully appreciate, which is that psychological aspect that they're constantly being bumped and barged by riders. So they're near on crashing every moment of the stage. And, you know, the psychological stress of racing and performance, underperformance and the demands of your sponsor. So that, that's the real sort of underappreciated side that I would, I would want people to take home 
and when they see the riders being being a little bit arsy on on interviews to kind of to take that with a pinch of salt and say that that's that's a culmination of a lot of stress that's coming out because it's it's 21 days with with very little downtime trevor what do you think how would you add to that so i have two things one is I think there's a lot you can take from Grand Tour riders. I think there's a lot you shouldn't. If you are married and have a full-time job, don't try to do a three-week stage race. <laughs> Unless don't, you're a pro and you're getting paid to do it. Don't try Unless, to yeah. train for one. Well, then it is a full-time job. To me, what really struck me is something that we've talked about a lot in this show, which is there is a whole bunch to bike racing that we can't really measure. And I think a grand tour is a, a really classic example of that. I, I intentionally quoted all those numbers to make the point. I look at those and go, I can do all those numbers. I also know if I was in the Tour de France, I wouldn't last 30 minutes. So all the things that make me not a tour rider and would just completely embarrass myself at a tour doesn't show up in the numbers, doesn't show up in, in Training Peaks or WK or whatever. Uh, software you're using. So bear in mind, there's a lot to training that is hard to measure, that's hard to see, but that doesn't mean you still shouldn't focus on it. And one of them, as you said, is that fatigability, building that resistance, which is really important. Chris? Yeah, I think this goes back to what Kieran was saying about how daunting a task it is to think about racing for three weeks and and the the quantity of time it has taken these athletes to get to a level where they can even complete such a task, let alone compete every day or be in the mix every day or stay out of trouble every day when you need to and, and be at the front of the race when it comes to the summit finish, if you're contending for the, the GC and then be ready for that time trial the next day and all of these things. It's a, I don't know that anything that we could quote in terms of the data, in terms of the numbers, in terms of the just talking about the multitude of stressors really encapsulates how hard the Tour de France is and all the demands that are there. I just thinking about how stressful it is as a journalist and we get the buffet every night and then we go type some stories and get up the next morning and do it and drive around a little bit. But to be competing every day and be on your game for that long dealing with all of those stressors is it's astounding to me. There's no take home in, in that message really, except be impressed because it's an incredibly impressive athletic endeavor. That was another episode of fast talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at velonews.com. Subscribe to fast talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google play. And be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Become a fan of the Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between velonews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Kieran O'Grady, Brent Bookwalter, Hushang Amiri, and that non-French guy, Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.